What is the one element of traditional corporate culture you erase that gets in the way of developing startups? You know, politics. What, you know, now that, you know, VaynerMedia in the last five years, I've grown the company quite a bit, so we're very fortunate, you know, whether it's Under Armour or Pepsi or Turner, you know, GE, we've, we're working with the biggest brands in the world, and one thing that's holding them all back is politics. You know, the game is built where people's vested interests are not aligned with the organizations. They're bonusing people and they're rewarding people on a very certain task that is completely against investing three to five years from now. Every decision is predicated, especially in big companies, on 90 day terms because you're in a Wall Street world where every 90 days they judge you and all the money that everybody as humans from the CEO down are involved in is the actual stock price. And if the stock price goes down, people get sad. If you look at what Jeff Bezos does and even Mark Zuckerberg to a degree, but not as well as Bezos in my opinion, is they completely disregard Wall Street and they're willing to have wild swings. But then you look up every three to five years and things are phenomenal. And, and so the thing that holds them back is the scoring system they've created for themselves, which is they're 90 day terms. And there's nothing that makes sense to invest in startup culture, VR like Scoble just showed you, no company's gonna invest in that because that's not 90 days away from today. That's not real in 90 days, that's real in two years, five years, nine years. And so for me, a lot of entrepreneurs and me myself, I've been successful because I mentioned earlier, it's gonna probably end up being the theme of this, which is I plan on doing business for the next 40 years, so why wouldn't I bring you value? And so corporations are stuck they're being financially rewarded in 90 day windows, which is the antithesis to investing in where the world's going. Shit is deep, right? <laughs> but it's just the truth. It's, you know, for people in here, and I saw people shaking their heads and I love that I can see you guys. You know, the people that have been in it, they know this truth, which is smart people may not agree with what they're doing, but they're doing it because their money is tied up in that. I have clients tell me every day that they wish they could take the money from a television commercial to put into a Facebook video because they believe me, but they can't because the way it's scored inside their organization, they would be vulnerable if they ran Facebook over television. So if the brand goes down and doesn't do well, as long as they're running TV, they're safe. But if they were to take a chance and run television, run Facebook, and the business went down, even if it had nothing to do with the Facebook or TV part, they would be vulnerable to lose their job, and I don't blame them. They have mortgages, they have kids to support, they have their lives, so they're not being put in a position to take risks, whereas in my life, entrepreneur land, everything on my shoulders, everything on me, I'm only being rewarded to take risk. So all that, what's, what's the tipping point for dollars to quit getting you know, pissed away into television? And Death, you know, when these companies die, guys, big companies die. There's a lot of people in this room that remember Sears being the number one retailer in America. There's a lot of people in this room that remember tons of things being number one and are no longer number one. Back to tech, we all remember Yahoo being number one or Microsoft being number one or, you know, IBM. Like, this is what happens. Big companies go out of business and then a new regime comes and they win because they took advantage of the arbitrage of marketing or innovation that was underpriced while the incumbent was spending money on overpriced activities or infrastructure. And so this is just the way capitalism has always been. Like, you know, I always laugh when people think I say, I mean, I'm not saying anything interesting. I'm just, you know, I may say it interesting with a little bit of flair and a little bit of jersey and a little bit of cursing, but if you break down what I talk about, it's super tried and true. I'm just, you know, it's just super tried and true. 
when I predicted three years ago that everybody would use Snapchat and everyone's like, no way, that was just me doing the same thing I did with Facebook eight years earlier, right? Which was when there's enough people, of, a, of enough people, if there's enough people, enough 13 to 18 year olds using the same thing, if a platform ever wins an entire generation, it will drag everybody else down into it. And so Twitter never did that, right? You know, other platforms never did that, but Snapchat did. Two and a half, three years ago, every single 14 to 18 year old was on it, which meant it was just a matter of time. So I think I get a lot of credit for common sense, which I'll gladly take and keep giving it to me, but um, I don't think it's all that complicated sometimes. I think what I do well and what allows me to sit here and have people want to take pictures and be nice to me is the one difference I think I have from a lot of people in this room is I'm not romantic about how I make my money. And let me be very clear about this. I won email marketing in 1997 for Wine Library. I didn't want email to get spammed out and not be as effective. It's what made me all my money. But in 1999 and 2001 and 2003 when all these other people started doing email marketing and I saw the conversion rates coming down and I saw the Web 2.0 coming up, I was okay to kill myself and my own business models because that's much more interesting than having somebody else do it for you, right? I, as a lot of you know, really did well on Twitter. That was my coming out party. I had a million followers on it. I wasn't excited about what I saw in 2011 and 12, that it was starting to lose its attention, that when I would tweet, less people would convert into just the awareness, even if, or a sale or whatever I was up to. So I started investing in you know, other platforms like Instagram and paying attention to Snapchat. It, I mean, a lot of you in the tech space, you know this, I was really at the height of Twitter, right? I had it. That wasn't fun for me, but I was willing to put myself out of business and spend more time on other platforms because I saw it coming. I think the biggest mistake people do is they try to hold on to something that doesn't exist anymore. And that has been a very big factor in my career. That's a perfect transition into a question from Robin Hunter, Think Data Solutions. Technology changes so much, there's always a learning curve. How do you sort of self-scout, self-teach yourself to be ahead of that curve? By doing it. It's, you know, meaning, I just do it. Like, every, you know, like, we know that Pokemon Go is happening, right? We know it's happening right now. You could say it's a fad or it's stupid or who cares. I need to understand it, not because I care if Pokemon Go will be here in three years, but because this is the coming out party for AR, right? And like, a million apps are being developed right now. Literally, all of Silicon Valley is sitting in boardrooms right now creating their AR app. And we're all gonna shop and go to football games and do all sorts of stuff through that environment. And so, you have to use it. The reason I did well on Vine and Snapchat was because of social cam. How many nerds remember social cam? Raise your hands. Good, six of us. So, <laughs> social cam was an app that was hot for like 47 seconds. It was vigged by the Facebook newsfeed. It got millions of users. I jumped on it. I used it a bunch and then it died. It died the way that Plurk died. It died the way that Vine in some ways has. You know, things come and go, but I'm not crippled by putting in the work because that understanding is then applied on something else. There's people in here that are like, I'm never gonna do anything with Pokemon Go. That's fine, but you're gonna do something with AR and so you need to use it. It's like trying to run a marathon without prepping for it. You're gonna lose. And a lot of you are losing opportunity and success because you're not anticipating what the next chess move is. So even though I didn't grow up in the era of Pokemon and I'm not as emotional about those characters, I mean, I know Pikachu, that's where it ends, but 
and my brother grew up with it and he loves it and he's using it, I don't care about the entertainment value, I care about understanding the consumer and human behavior around it. As a startup founder, how do you maintain positivity and a healthy culture through the different stages of growth, especially when it's fast-paced growth? So Vayner went from 30 to 650 people in four years um, and from one to five offices, including London. And uh, you know, the way I've kept culture is dictatorship. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just the thing that I care about the most. And so, you know, here's how you keep, keep culture. When Kristen in the office is upset about something and I'm on my way from Connecticut into New York to do a new business pitch, potentially worth $5 million, and I detour and skip that pitch to go and talk out with her that issue, that's how you maintain culture. Guys, life's very simple. There's, there's the things you wish you were doing, there's the things you're saying that you're doing, and then there's the things that you actually do. The way you maintain culture is the same answer as the question prior to this. You do it in your actions. I don't meet with every single employee that works for me for 10 minutes, three months in, to check the box and seem like a personal CEO. I do it because in those 10 minutes, I wanna create some sort of connection that makes them feel comfortable to say hi to me in the elevator or to like come with a problem to me. I do it because I ask them where their hometown is so I can make a joke about the Cleveland Indians in the elevator to show them that I was paying attention. I do it because I wanna know if they are, have siblings, how they roll, what interests are they in, because if I wanna surprise and delight them because they're crushing it, that I can get them Coachella tickets, right? I do it because it has purpose. And so I maintain culture very simply. Dictatorship, my actions, and the number one and two other options are meritocracy, letting talent speak for itself, and then finally firing the most talented people if they're not willing to care about their teammates more than them thinking they're fancy. And you know, my ego is so big that I don't think I need anybody that works for my company. And so thus they're all expendable if they're not willing to treat each other with respect and love. And I hear you talk a lot about, I think one of the reasons they respect you and follow you as a leader is because you are a practitioner. Yeah, I, I stand in front of those 500 or so 25 year olds and I'm like, I'm the best at social media in this office, right? And I mean it. I, and, and that's because I use it more than they do. I mean, they're using it to hook up. I'm trying to sell shit. <laughs> and I mean that, I think what's interesting about that is where I got really lucky with VaynerMedia I don't know how you feel about your agency, but what happened for me is I don't care about the creative, it's subjective. I don't care about the awards, I don't wanna win a can lion. I wanna sell stuff. And at some level, somewhere within the organization, eventually, somebody cares about that too. You know, we don't win business sometimes because they care about their job and they don't wanna do social over TV, respect. We, you know, some people are worried that I'm too busy doing other things and not respect. You can think anything, but at the end of the day, Again, back to the other two things. Results are results are results. We take over Sour Patch Kids as a client and they become the fastest growing candy in the category. That's real, there's no debating. Whether you, you didn't like that I cursed along the way or that we did some weird new things, mazel tov. But the fact of the matter is, the results are results. And so that's what I live on. I know what our intent is. We're not worried about our profit margin. 
mainly because we think we're gonna get it all in the end of the day. You know, making 8% margin on 400 million is a hell of a lot more interesting than making 20% on 30 million. And so I'm playing the long game, I always have. It's why a lot of you have good relationships with me. I see you at different places. I know who you are, I care, I interact with you. Like, life is simple. Like, (laughs) the truth wins. You may be confused because times are tough in the media and there's always issues in this country and we got flaws and all that stuff. You're more than welcome to look at the pessimistic aspects of society and life. I choose to in my 80, 90 years, hopefully on earth, to understand that I got to be a human being which if you want to talk about big data and math, the rarity of actually becoming a person is insane. And just way too many people don't understand that and appreciate it and I do and so I'm playing the long game on all this stuff. We're pretty lucky. Pretty lucky we turned into Super lucky. And you live in America? You could have been a rhinoceros. <laughs> or like a tree, that fucking tree. Uh, next question from <laughs> Dave Gray, Dax Cut, another local success story. Uh, on CNBC's Fallout of Leader, you said nobody outworks you. I really believe that. I, I do too. <laughs> How do you maintain that without exhausting or you know, killing all those around you? Uh, that's a great question. Over communicating, you know? I mean, it just comes down to communication. I have to, I have to talk with Lizzie a lot. You know, the kids are getting older. And that, I, I, do think, uh, I do think this would be the, I'm getting into the end of an era of like 17 and 18 hour days because my children are now seven and four and there's just more stuff that comes along with that. And so I think that's fine and that's great, you know. Um, but it comes down to communication. You know, I think people talk about work-life balance a lot. Of, ever since I started doing Daily V, which is my video vlog, daily kind of vlog thing, and, and Snapchat, I think a lot of you that have followed me for several years have started really realizing I wasn't joking that I was working this much. I think prior, when I would talk about hustle, I think people were like, yeah, he works hard, but like, when you get to see that it's fully documented and there's no, no cheating, and I'm working 7 a.m. to midnight every single day, every single day, every single minute, um, it becomes intimidating. It's my natural, you know, just so like some of you are very smart and some of you are very pretty and some of you are very funny. Like it's my natural state to hustle that hard. Not being born in this country, coming up with nothing, you know, feeling guilty that you have certain talents. There's a million reasons that it drives me. Um, but the, what I love about this question is it's not how do I do it, it's how do I keep the people around me in a healthy place. Um, it's a super intense thing, man. I think I never judge anybody's work-life balance. You know, as a matter of fact, here's a good opportunity for me. I always want to clear this up. I don't think you should work 15 hours a day. I think if you're complete, here's my punchline. If you're complaining about your life, you need to look at what you're doing. So, for example, I have friends that are making hundreds of millions of dollars in their careers, tens of millions of dollars a year, and they're complaining that they're not spending time with their family? Then spend time with your family, dick. And then, I have, and then I have people emailing me every day complaining that their business is not taking off and I go do one quick Twitter search and their 6 p.m. tweet is hitting the links with my buddies. Like, you know, you're not gonna win and build a big business if you're watching Game of Thrones and playing Pokemon Go all day. Like it's just, a, nobody's won on just talent. Hard work is part of the equation. So I don't judge anybody, I think, I get judged because I put myself out there and then I deserve to be judged and when people hit me up and say, you're gonna regret this, you're gonna regret this and I get that. I get those emails. I reply all the time, I'm like, you don't know me. 
Like, I respect why you're saying that because I don't, you know, one thing that some of you that really follow me know is my wife and I have decided not to share our family life on social. So unlike a lot of my tech friends who use the cute pictures of their kids to get more likes on their social media, I'm not interested in doing that with my children. I'm gonna let them decide. Misha's already, I think she's gonna have a YouTube show in a week, so it seems like she wants to do that, great. Um, but I don't want to do that, and so it feels even more extreme, right? You know, and I always ask people that really call me out on it, I'm like, if you're paying attention to me so much, why haven't you noticed that I put out zero Snapchat content over the weekends, right? Like, like why don't you really pay attention? What do you think I'm doing between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. when you see nothing? Like, like I'm documenting every moment I'm in it, so, you know, I'm spending, a, I'm spending far less family time than most, but there's a whole other aspect of family time. I have a lot of friends from high school that like to critique me because it's the yin and yang of like, yeah, you're making money, but I'm I'm a family man and and I say to them, I'm like, cool, but I know you and you come home at six o'clock at night and you go to your man cave and drink six Budweiser's and go to sleep, so fuck you. (laughs) So, so, you know, just because you're in the same house as your children doesn't mean you're parenting. Amen. Yeah. So have you started, I know for a while you were talking about hustling till 6 p.m., going home for three hours, then getting back after it. Have you enacted that? Yeah, so this September, and honestly, it doesn't feel good to me right now. I don't feel like I'm ready for it, but I'm really trying to sell myself, which is why I'm saying it publicly, to come home during the weekday. I'm, I'm such a momentum guy. You know, like, I'm so momentum oriented, so the thought of coming home at six in the middle of my day, and that's my middle day, and spend an hour with the kids and then kind of re- like switch the brain to be in kids mode, what to do school, you know, what's going on in the world and then reset back to being back and trying to like stab people in the face and win is hard um, but I'm gonna have to pull it off. I'm very, uh, it's important to me, you know, I'm getting a lot of time with my kids on the weekends and we're taking a lot of vacation time now. I'm really in a much better place than I was several years ago but I'm feeling uncomfortable with the idea of how consistently I can go four or five days in a row, being in New York, seeing them zero. It just doesn't feel as right as it did 18 months ago, 12 months ago, so I'm just, you know, I'm a smoke than fire guy, right? Like I'm just, what I'm doing right now is I'm selling myself more than telling you a story of like, this is something I wanna do, and so I'm just beating on my own brain to get there. It goes back to what you said too, you know, switching your, switching your mind from business mode to family mode a lot of times. If you're at the house from six to nine but you're not present, you know, you're still in This is happening all day. Like, 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 you know, I think what you're sensing, and I'm sure a lot of you don't deeply know me, like, I'm very comfortable in my own skin. I'm comfortable with my politically correct shortcomings because it's my life and my kid's life and my wife's life. Like, I know what's happening inside our four walls. So, I just wish more people would feel comfortable. I think if you're happy, so much more happens. So I know a lot of people, this one, this one woman's a CEO of a company I invest in, she's amazing. She feels the need to check the box to the world, to her mother, to her friends, that she comes home and spends more time with her family. But every minute she's in that house, I'm getting emails from her on questions about the business. She's not there. And I told her, I was like, you need to, and she's not perfectly happy because of it. Because she doesn't want to be home. She wants to be running her business. She loves her family. She's just on fire and she wants it. And so like, I just don't think people understand how long-term life is. You know, like, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Everybody has their own way. You're looking at a kid, not anymore, but you're looking at a guy whose dad 
I didn't see from the ages of seven until 14 ever. And we were, my parents were together. It's just that he left before I woke up and he came home after I went to sleep. And I love my dad more than breathing. And me and my dad have it awesome. I think we've gotten into a very hardcore politically correct zone where for some reason between social media and just the topics of the day, everybody wants to impose their point of view of the world on other people and I think that's stupid. So so on the work-life balance thing, I've got my thing. It's what feels right. I, I think everybody in here has to keep themselves happy first, then you can make other people happy. And, and it evolves and it changes. I mean, I'm not convinced that I might not just one year wake up and just check out for a year, just cause. I might, just, I don't know. It's, it's funny to me that it runs through my head sometimes. Maybe in between businesses if something happens, I don't know, I don't know. But right now I can tell you like, hustling, producing for my family, producing for myself, producing for my employees and my team, and producing content for you guys, it, you know, I'm as happy as it gets. Awesome. Let's talk about Birmingham for a second. Okay. Uh, this question comes from Michael Gerard, Executive Vice President at TechLinks. What is the one thing that we can do here in Birmingham as a community to grow the technology community? Uh, what local entities need to be involved? What can we do to make it successful? You need a win. And what I mean by a win, I mean not win, you need a win. And so I think a lot of communities, and I've spent a lot of time, obviously we opened an office in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I I helped kick off Big Omaha. It was a canceled conference that I had committed to and it's gone on to become a big deal. Uh, I got an email from a kid yesterday in Oklahoma City, because I went there in 2009, that a bunch of the leaders in the market said, holy crap, wait a minute, we all started our business after that Gary Vee talk. So bringing in Scoble and things of that nature, this, I mean this is, unbelievably important, right? Like so many more people are asking me questions about you guys today, right now on social, why are you there, what's going on? But you don't need to bring anybody, me, Scoble, anything. The real win for any community is you need to support each other and get a win. A company coming from this town that makes a global or at least a national impact on the scene is what it takes to take a city and put it on the map. That's just the truth. And so, you know. We need a big exit. Look, LA was a, it's not, it's not that you need a big exit. I don't wanna play the VC game. You don't need a big round. You don't need a big, you need a big impact, right? Like, you need a big impact. Like, guys, Snapchat coming out of LA has changed LA tech. And LA is a big city, right? But these things matter. GoDaddy in Arizona, these things matter. Even Dewalla, you know, a lot of these companies start in places What you need to figure out, what the city needs to figure out is I'm positive and and you guys know me, I'm not pandering to you, I don't give a shit how you feel about me. I'm positive that something amazing will come out of here. My concern is as soon as it starts happening you're gonna move to San Francisco. And that's what happens. Facebook was started in Boston. Pinterest was started in Pennsylvania. So the key is not only to fester the community to help each other tech-wise, marketing-wise, to have a win, but then what can you guys do from a city and state level to make that person or that team want to ground themselves here for the long haul? And everybody that comes from a smaller town than a top five city always feels like they have to go to one of those cities to make it because of the tech talent or the venture capital. I I believe that to not be true anymore because of the infrastructure around the internet marketing world today. So that's that's the truth. You can do a lot of events, 
You can do a lot of marketing, but what you need is a win. And I think if you get really back to the opening line here today, 5149, giving more to others, if you've got a business in this community that is not a direct competitor of your business and you have more marketing chops or you have more technical chops, cross-pollinating and helping each other is exactly what small towns can do better than big towns and I highly recommend that southern hospitality that is deeply rooted in your DNA to begin with that you figure out how to use that in a business environment as well because the impact of one of those people popping and winning will have a bigger ROI on your business as a halo effect than if you do it separately. I know it's cool of being here. It's true, thanks for the claps, but what's even more interesting is I think it's, you know, back to stereotypes, I think it's more natural in you. I can tell you right now, there's not a lot of people from Jersey that are just gonna hook it up. You know, and so like, I do think that you should take it, I think everybody should bet on their strengths and I think that sense of community that you guys have is very real and you should take full advantage of it. And I think the entrepreneurs in the audience get into the sharp elbows entrepreneur DNA and leave a little bit of that DNA of Southern hospitality on the side and I actually think they should go completely the other way. Yeah, I mean, culturally we have a lot of advantages because that is the culture. A hundred percent. And technology makes it to where you can level the playing field from Birmingham out. Because so it's leveled. <laughs> you know, I, well I think, I, think it, I think there's a lot of things. I think it's just momentum. You know, again, being somebody who's kicked off and been at the inaugural conference of a lot of small cities by comparison to New York, San Francisco, it's stunning with something just like this. It's unbelievable. I'm so proud to be here. I definitely think with all the stories I get to tell my children and grandchildren one day, the fact that during this 20 year era that I went and used my micro fame within the community to go to places that were not New York and LA and San Francisco and in any small part, because look, I'm just flying through, it's you guys, it's you guys that are actually making it happen, but to even be point zero 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 one of the narrative of being at the first conference, bending, changing my schedules, doing it for less, all those things, it feels nice and I'm, I'm proud of that. Let's get back into... Uh... agency grind or VaynerMedia grind. Okay. This question is from Alex Kissler. What are a few ways that you make sure meetings are quick, efficient, lively amongst clients internally, uh, employees and client meetings? Well, if I'm in them, they're all that. So that's easy. Um, <laughs> after that, you just hope, I, the truth is I don't. I hope through osmosis and people seeing how I want them. Like I have three minute meetings with people. You know, like, like I think the number one flaw in client services is you book a 30 minute meeting, it's actually eight minutes of work, but since your Google Calendar says it's 30, you just are a human and you waste 22 minutes. So I'm big on four minute, seven minute, 11 minute meetings. Um, we've, AJ is the best at this. He, he like tried to mandate it, you know, and like cut things. You know, I think that I try to inspire it through my own actions, but I'm very aware of human uh, tendencies and shortcomings and it just, you try to bring it up ever so often but it's a very difficult challenge. I think, I think uh, most humans are, are just not smart with their time management. Next question from Jacob Kirschenbaum. What has caused the rise of live streaming media while the market has shifted to delayed consumption like Netflix, Hulu? Um, they're just two micro kind of trends. They both 
work. Like, you know, I always say to people, like, I really believe that you will watch a five and a half hour movie. Like, I think if, how many people here, if the next Star Wars is five and a half hours, would be thrilled to go watch it? Raise your hands. That's insane. <laughs> five and a half hours. Nerds. <laughs> I'd run there, opening night. Midnight to five in the morning and go to work, in. You know, so I think great content can make somebody watch for five and a half hours. I also know there's a ton of people in here that stopped watching a six second Vine after three seconds. The length of your content is not the variable of its quality. And so we're gonna always wanna watch two hour movies and one hour TV shows. But we also wanna watch live streaming. So they're just two different macro trends. I don't think they're conflicting. I think one thing we have to recognize is we only have 24 hours in a day. And so if you're allocating three, six, whatever hours to entertainment, they may come in the form of Netflix, they may come in the form of live streaming, they may come in the form of just searching Instagram all day. It's incredible the length of time some of you are spending in Snapchat stories, like, right? And so I think, um, I think the bigger issue at hand is that the cell phone is just so much the remote control of our lives and I think sooner than later we'll control what we watch on TV more and more. Obviously things like augmented reality, definitely social and video in there and so what's allowing it is just tech infrastructure. As Wi-Fi gets stronger, as bandwidth gets stronger, more powerful and you're not buffering when you're watching high quality video from the over the top networks, it's time, right? And so, you know, I, some guy, back to Star Wars, I flew from New York to LA and watched somebody sitting next to me watch the entire latest Star Wars on their phone on the flight out. And why I thought that was super important is everybody in Hollywood is like, no, big theaters and you need the right set. This guy watched it on his phone. People grossly underestimate how much we love the story. We love production, we love a lot of things, but we love stories. And stories can come in any form. I broke out on YouTube in 2006 doing a show called Wine Library TV. And I don't know if any, how many of you ever saw Wine Library TV? Thank you. So. Thanks mom. And so, and so as some of you might remember, I mean I looked like a hostage in the Middle East. I mean there was no audio, I never wore a mic, there was no lighting. I mean, you know, it wasn't the production value that made it work, it was the content that was coming out of my mouth. And so I think that we get caught up some way to, so many people get caught up in the production value. And look, DRock's come into my life and clearly it's taught me there's plenty of value in that as well, but it's not an either or, and you don't have to do both every time. And so, I don't think there's anything without the story. If the story blows, you don't care about the special effects. At your core, is that what you are as a storyteller? 100%, 100%. Whether I was storytelling the wines of New Zealand, you know, Australia and Spain before anybody in America, whether I was storytelling me, and whether I'm storytelling businesses around me, that's exactly what I am and, and for me I got lucky because I think the world went in a direction that matched my natural skill set in storytelling. I'm comfortable in very fast, off the cuff, you know, raw, real, authentic. It's just, it's matched me so I'm very grateful to be born in this era because I wasn't moving to Hollywood in 1974 to make it, right? That's, you know, I was 32 years old. 30, I was 30, you know, I was 31 years old when I started Wine Library TV. It was the first time I ever made a video for the world. So I wasn't in the mindset of I'm gonna become a personality. I'm a businessman who happens to be a little bit charismatic. 
So as a storyteller, do you think, you know, you say you day trade attention. Yes. Is that an evolution of a storyteller just in today's market? Well, I think a story, to be a great storyteller, you can't just be great at the story, you have to understand where it's being distributed and how. Way too many storytellers stink at the context part of storytelling. You have to know where it's being delivered. What I've done very well, and when I say I day trade attention, it's back to me not being romantic. I follow you. I don't get to say that Twitter lasts forever. I don't get to say that Netflix lasts forever. I'm just paying attention to your eyes and ears and I'm watching you 24-7, 365. (laughs) And while so many of you talk about what you're not gonna do, I make bets on what you're gonna do. How many people here thought or said in the last three years that they were not gonna ever be on Snapchat? Snapchat was stupid, it was for kids, sexting, raise your hands. Raise them high. Of those people, how many of you are now on Snapchat? That's what I do for a living. All right, this question is from Aaron Albright, talking about Snapchat. What are your thoughts on the memories feature? Love it. Does it add to the, I mean, does it take away or add from the sort of in the moment? Guys, it's gonna be the same game forever. All of these things start as a niche. Facebook's a college social network. Snapchat is disappearing content. Musical.ly is dubbing you know, music songs and things of that nature. Then they hit scale and then they give you every feature because they go from being a niche app to being a content platform. Got it? Rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. In nine years I'll get so much credit for being right about Schmuga, but all I did was deploy that thesis. Meanwhile, everyone's like, this is what now ruins Snapchat, the memories feature. You know, just like newsfeed ruined Facebook. Great for Facebook, shitty for that person that's wrong on the record and you can Google it and see that they were fucking wrong. Are you, are you seriously, are you, I, I hear you're a businessman, we, we like to hear you say that, we know you are a businessman, but you are equally motivated in my opinion, you know, not only by the game, earning, hustling, but also by being right. Talk about that. <laughs> Damn it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, and, and honestly, I'm not proud of it. I actually think it's quite vain and not super, I don't think it's a good trait, but boy, am I driven by saying I told you so. Um, and it's, you know, it's just the truth. I'm not proud, I'm really truly not proud of it. I actually don't think it's a very attractive characteristic, but I get off on it, I do. I love, I love being underestimated. I loved, I hated Tiger Woods. Then America hated him, then I loved him, right? Like, I love underdogs. I, I'm an underdog, I love underdogs. I like, I loved when I got into VaynerMedia and Adweek wrote, Twitter boy is coming to the agency world. Let's see how that works out. I'll tell you Adweek how it worked out. I fucking destroyed everybody, you know? And so, and so, you know, A very funny thing happened. In the liquor business, when I got involved in my dad's business, a bunch of sons had come into the businesses of a lot of other liquor store owners about five years earlier than me. And they they didn't win. They weren't good. And so when I came, there was a lot of people like, oh, here's another one, right? My dad was part of a group of like 10 or 11 guys or gals that had good stores in New Jersey. And like, I loved being underestimated. I loved when all those people told me to open a second liquor store instead of this fad internet thing that I'm doing. Right? I love that, I live for that. As a matter of fact, the reason, it's happening, why do you think I opened Vayner Sports? I don't think CAA and Rock Nation are worried about me right now, but they will be. That's what I was about to ask you. I mean, is that, you, you 
think about like Drew Rosenhaus sitting there. I'm gonna kill. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna kill Drew now. Now, you have to understand something. If Drew's good enough, this is how I think about life. I wanna build the biggest building in town. Got it? I wanna build the biggest building in town. So when I say I'm gonna kill Drew, I don't mean I want to kill him. I mean I wanna win. I wanna build the biggest building in town. However, the reason I think that I'm likable in business circles of people that really know me is here's my thesis on building the biggest building in town. By going out and building the biggest building in town. If you look very careful at a lot of other business people, their theory on building the biggest building in town is by tearing down all the other buildings around them. If you understand that little story, you'll understand me completely and you'll understand my belief of what a purebred entrepreneur is. I want everybody to win. I want Drew's business to get 10 times bigger. I want all of you to build bigger businesses than me. But I want to build a bigger business than you. And what I love about America is for all our shortcomings, this is still the best playing field to let meritocracy rule and I love that and I love that feeling. And when (laughs) And when my homie, Travis from Uber and when my homie Chris Saka becomes the best VC and goes on Shark Tank and they beat me, I'm the most pumped for them, they deserve it. And then I say, but it's not over yet. (laughs) And that's who I am. This question comes from Tucker Haas, BBVA Compass. Where do you see social media going next? Can we do this in Birmingham? Can we do this here once and for all? There's no social media. It is a slang term for the internet. <laughs> Tell me what social media is. People call Pokemon Go social media. Like, there is no social media. Robert, Robert we called it Web 2.0. Robert wrote blog posts, so did I, that said Web 2.0 site Facebook looks really good. Like there is no social media, it is a slang term to make it easy to, for us to refer to certain things. But I don't know, like, where is it going? It's the internet. And the internet's going in a lot of places and a lot of things are happening. But will we want to always stay in touch with each other at scale and communicate with each other and produce content? The answer is yes. And whether that goes from the internet and then goes into a VR environment or something we can't think of today, the answer is yes. We like to communicate with each other. We drew pictures in the side of a cave. We stood on mountains and made smoke signals. We communicate. It's what we do. It's never going away. Awesome. <laughs> I think you just killed social media. <laughs> I love it. It's just a term. It's just a term. Uh, this question is from Jennifer Shellen, president of Tech Birmingham. Yes. As a very self-aware person yes. with thick skin, how do you determine what to react to and what people are comments that you, you, know, you actually take to heart versus blinders? That's a really interesting question. The truth is I think it's complete serendipity and randomness. You know, it's sometimes the day of the week, the moment. For example, I'm quite testy after New York Jets losses. So if I think about my scrum ups on social, a lot of them have happened on Sunday night. Um, you know, so, you know, it's random. Here's what I would say. I think most people are unbelievably awesome. I'm, I'm the most bullish person on human beings. Again, and I'm, it's becoming more of an intense feeling because we're living through a tough time in the US where I think we have to look at ourselves really long and hard and we've got real issues and I believe in those issues. I do believe they're issues. However, I think we have to take it at a macro level. It is stunning that we are still here. Guys, we, we, we invented bombs that wipe us completely out. We invented bombs that wipe us completely out a long time ago, a half a century ago. What's that? We actually had enough to do it. Right, right. So like the fact that we're here 
Like we're, I'm a big fan of that human beings are the number one underrated thing in the world. We're gonna spend all our time talking about the small percentage that creates terrible things like that happened in France and, you know, and Dallas and the individual cops that do these bad things. We, I understand what, why and they populate as our main stories but I'm bullish on human beings and so the, way, the things that I react to are the following. There's a lot of people that say things about me because I've put myself out there. Most of them, I have a lot of empathy to why they think that. They didn't like my ego in that moment. They didn't like something I said. They didn't like the confrontational aspect of my East Coast Jersey thing. And I think they're right. So it's very easy when somebody takes a shot at me for me to understand where they're coming from. The, only, the things that I, that I sometimes engage with is when I think the intent was really mean, like bad, like evil. I think 99.999% of things that are said about me that I don't like come from a good place. It's that person's point of view on me and I'm very empathetic. I think once in a while somebody comes along and is just genuinely dark in the core and I wanna fight that with some light in return. And usually I, I start with understanding. Some people just really, you know, I don't know. And so it's, it's actually very easy for me, you know? You talk about EQ. IQ is decreased in value because of technology but EQ is greater than ever. You know, emotional intelligence really, really matters. And I look for that in anybody that I surround myself with. Do you actually have empathy and gratitude and self-awareness and care and all these warm and fuzzy things that I think are the essential infrastructure to be successful in business? Are you, you want other people to be big fans of humanity as well? Yeah, I, you know, I just, I, I'm gonna struggle to the day I die of allowing yourself to look at glass half empty. I just feel like, I feel like, now I understand, it's DNA and it's wiring and it's, you know, if you grow up with a mother who's extremely negative, it's a really tough situation to break out of. It's just proven, I've understood. You grow up in a tough town, I get it. There's a couple of issues with that. Number one, nobody cares. That's the big punchline. Like, everybody's got stuff. The problem is nobody cares. And once you understand that nobody cares and you're complaining to empty air, you start going in a little bit of a different direction. And yeah, I mean, I try to, I like putting out positivity. I like that, I love that my trainer, Mike, who spent the last two years with me, is going through like some weird depression thing right now because he's not around me 24 seven. And he's like, I miss the positivity. Like, that's a good thing. And I, and I want other people to have that and I want other people. Uh, you know what, guys, I want to say something right now, getting a little bit on a bigger plane. What's happening right now in tech and business and society is the small minority of people that are mad and angry and hateful and dark are much louder than the big percentage of us that are happy and excited and feel great. And because of the way technology works, they are much louder than they've ever been before. And so I feel like as somebody who's got full of bright light and happiness, that I need to start getting louder about that as well because that's the only way we're gonna combat it. And you know what? That right there in real time is what it's all about because if that's the thing that's gonna get the loudest clap so far from this conversation, that's what we need to be focusing on. Like, we, you know, and this is something I'm focusing inside of VaynerMedia, and this is something I'm focusing with all my friends, and this is something that I wanna bring to this network. And listen, let me be really blunt with you. Over the last five years, 
until about 18 months ago when I came back out with a lot of content. For three years there, I was fairly quiet for me if anybody's been following me since 2006. It's because I didn't want to be a motivational speaker. You know, I didn't like the part that made people rah-rah because I was so proud that I can actually build businesses and I think the thing that a lot of people look at when they see a motivational speaker is there's fluff behind it and a lot of times there's bad behind it and I wanted to disassociate myself from that world but I feel more responsibility than ever as somebody who is happy and wants other people to be happy genuinely uh, to get louder and so it's an interesting time in in our country's history and, and just in human society and so If you leave with anything, I'll give you tactics on social, you'll remember Scoble's amazing VR thing. If you leave with anything for any of us, please please take on the sense of responsibility that if you've got good and you feel good, to start sharing that content as well because the world needs more of it. mentioned people that have followed you for a good while have definitely noticed a, a change in your tone and more you know effort towards being positive yeah. putting out content that, that encourages people to be positive do you ever I mean do you ever get down what gets you down <laughs> I uh, as long as the 8 to 12 core people in my life are healthy I struggle to really get down I just don't know how to do it like, like what am I, like here's the game I play. I'm on the cover of Time Magazine and it says he did it, right? And it's me holding a Jets jersey, right? And then I get a phone call and it's my sister usually, I don't know why, telling me that my mom died and I'm crushed. And I'm so in tune with my feelings that I generally like can get into like teared up devastation mode. Like my brain is, by the way, I think the brain is so underrated and we don't know a lot about it. There's some, seven years ago I decided never to get sick again and I haven't been sick. Just a random fun fact. Um, so the feeling, even right now telling you this story and not even fully doing it, I don't feel good. Like I feel like nausea, right? So why would I live my life any other way? Why in the world would I live my life allowing my business wins and losses to really impact me anywhere close to the health and well-being and happiness of the people that I love the most. I'm just not capable. I lose business every day. I win business every day. People say I'm the best. People say I'm full of shit. All of it happens. All of it happens. But at the end of the day, the, the rewards that I'm getting, and I'm getting plenty of them, the rewards that I'm getting in life are just massively secondary to those people. And that's how I live my life. And so when you live your life that way, Losing a big account or somebody calling you out is just not that painful. You just put it into context. I usually just like, you know, like take it. You know, like, you know what my, I, this is so interesting. I think you'll find this interesting. My favorite scene in movies is always when somebody gets punched in the mouth and they take the punch, they spit their tooth out and then they look back at the other person. I don't know if you've seen that. There's always some version of that scene. That's who I am as a fucking human being. Like, I'm built to get punched in the mouth, I'm gonna spit my front tooth out and I'm gonna look right back at you and be like, now what, bitch? (laughs) That's how I feel about life. (laughs) And that's it. We got a a bad task, obviously, and a lot of them wanna ask you questions, so let's let's get rolling with audience participation. Awesome, let's do it. You guys ready? Who's first? Let's do it. Let's go. (laughs) And then this guy over here. One day, a guy came up to me at, after a conference and, and, and said, I've never met you, uh, 
I read your post on uh, being sexually abused, and that night I had a discussion with my wife about being sexually abused. And I've been thinking about that conversation ever since. It, it's a highly rewarding thing. How do we get people to help other people? And by being human, like you're talking about, but that drug is the strongest drug I've ever had. And I'm, I'm chasing that. Yeah. How do we chase that as a community? I think you and I are just doing it right now. Like, the courage for a man to say he was sexually abused in our society today is extreme. And I applaud you and and you know, these are the things I try to talk about too. I made a video, Robert, about who are you worried about letting down? It was one of the big insights I figured out on the road. I'm like, huh, people aren't taking chances not because they're scared, but they're scared what their mom's gonna think. They're scared what their wife's gonna think. They're scared what their husband's gonna think if they fail, when they fail. And I made that video, it was me talking to somebody in London, and I mean thousands of interactions, I think, we, I think the truth is the game. You know, the truth is, live streaming isn't ruining America. America doing the wrong things hurts America. And I'm thrilled, I'm excited about living over the next 10 years in society where we as a society in America are gonna take one, this is, hear me out now, a step backwards because it's time for us to deal with our issues. We're gonna take a step backwards because of Facebook Live. We're gonna take a step backwards, but we're gonna take two steps forward because the truth is always better. And so I think the, what we do, Robert, is we continue to tell stories of truth, we continue to tell our truth stories, give other people courage, and it's a momentum game. You were able to do that, that helped that one individual do that, and that's why, and that's why I'm spending a lot of time. You know, I've been, I've been spending a lot of time in, in inner cities. I, I, did a pod, I did a morning show called The Breakfast Club uh, a couple months ago that went extremely viral. And, you know, and even looking around, seeing you know, minorities shaking their head, like it went viral, right? And w- the interesting thing is, a lot of people don't know about me, is I went to college with a 90% African-American college, right? And so I spent a lot of time in that ecosystem. That w- are who my best friends are. I have a lot of empathy, but still, I'm not black, right? When I went on that show, and this is, and this is before the flare-up that's happening now, I wasn't talking about racial issues. I just said, nobody cares. And it was insane what's happened in my inbox soon. The same thing I just did for everybody here and said nobody cares. Nobody cares. Everybody's got shortcomings. And one of the things that I've told so many of my friends, like, the, like I always tell my friends, you're right. Like, I tell all my female entrepreneurs all the time, you're right. There's, there's a male prejudice, you're right. You're right, it is harder for a female entrepreneur to get funding from VCs. It is harder for, it is harder. It is harder for a minority, it is, that's true. But I always ask them, now what? And so I think that we just have to have more real conversations instead of just pandering. You know, I did a conference where somebody asked me about, it was a female entrepreneur conference, I've done a lot of investing in that demo, and they said, Gary, is there a difference between men and women? And I said, yes, and people got upset. I was like, what the fuck is the matter with you? <laughs> there is a difference between men and women. Like, like you know, and so like, I just think that we're in a very funny time. Look, I think empires fall. You know why I think empires fall? Because all of them have fallen. And they fall after too many years of good. Just wanna give you a news alert. If you're under 40, you've been real privileged. Your grandpa, you know, like I, I, my most viral Instagram post ever happened the other day. I think it said something like, 
your grandparents, you know, you're complaining enough about not getting a bunch of likes while your grandparents went to war, right? Like we've just gotten soft. Like as a collective, you may not be soft, I definitely don't think I'm soft, but you know, as a collective, and even I, you know what, I don't think I'm soft, it's a lot easier to work 19 hours a day than live in the Great Depression. It's a lot easier to work 19 hours a day than be drafted and going to Europe. Like, what the fuck is the matter with us? Like, it's time for us to reconcile that we've had two generations. Everyone's like, oh, this generation, it's so too bad. Like, they're gonna be the first generation that is not gonna have a better life than their parents. We deserve it. We got soft. Like, you know, the data's pretty clear. There's a lot more 13 and 14 year olds that didn't work in this last generation than the generation before it. Maybe they're too soft because they're, you know, they went to camp every fucking summer. <laughs> like, like maybe, you're not, maybe you're not winning because your biggest issues growing up was you didn't get the new Jordans. Like, like what's the matter with people? So anyway, I don't remember what the fuck I was talking about but let's go do shit. <laughs> yeah. Truths, Robert, truths. Your truth helped that man. You know what I mean? I think, it's, I think it helps female entrepreneurs and minorities more to say yes, there's a difference, now what? That's a truth. I wish it wasn't the case, but I only play in the market that I live in, you know? Hey, so uh, earlier you said that maintaining your own happiness is, is really important before you tend to others, right? 100% believe that. But I think the best way to do that, and I tell my friends this too, the key to be, you know, the key to life is being nice to people. And the best way to maintain your own happiness, I think, is to invest in your relationships with others, right? So, real quick, real quick, that's your DNA. Right. I can tell you that is not how my dad rolls. And my dad's his best when he does what's his best for him. So I think that's idealistically exactly right. And you're looking at a guy who's so thankful that that's how he's wired, but not everybody's wired that way. And that self-awareness matters. And it's important. I agree. And so, the next part of that is being an entrepreneur is often, you know, by nature a selfish endeavor, right? Yep. So how do you maintain being an entrepreneur at the same time, pouring into others more than, you know, you care about yourself? By doing it. You know, like, I feel very comfortable making money and being successful. As comfortable as I am being there emotionally for others and doing other things. By doing both. It's just actions. I don't, I, nobody should beat themselves up for trying to do good for themselves. That's insanity, right? And so, I'm just comfortable. On Tuesday, I'm just rolling and selling stuff and making it happen and winning, yay, right? You know, DJ Khaled, all I do is win, 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 like winning, right? And then on Thursday, I go and speak to kids or give back or donate a bunch of money to somebody. I don't know, like every day is different, but I'm not in the business of critiquing myself. Like, here's the problem, my man. Everybody is trying to project to the world a PR version of themselves, right? Do you do the right thing and everything has a funny way of figuring itself out. Robert was an absolute mainstay in the world that I wanted to jump in. In 2006, I wanted to be part of Web 2.0, right? I was, I was in left field. Like, they were all in San Francisco, all from tech TV and blogging. I had a liquor store in New Jersey. I, 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 what I did was I put my head down and I worked, right? I just worked. I like did smart things, I used the product better, I gave back to my, and it was chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. That's, that's what it is. And so how do, I, how do I reconcile that? By doing both. Like sometimes I'm selfish and sometimes I'm not.
And sometimes I'm selfish for a month, and sometimes I'm not for a year. You just roll. But you don't, I don't over microanalyze that. Like I know what's in my heart, and, and then I know that if I can match, if, if, you know, the biggest thing I fear is that I can't match in my actions the intent in my heart. I battle for that, because if I can pull that off, I'm good. All time good. You know, this dude here, by the way, also in the hat. Yeah, I'll he, ask, but you've already answered it. Did I? Yeah, so it's more of a psychological type question. Is it the early bird that gets the worm, or is it the bird that matches the sleep patterns of the worm that gets the worm? Both. Okay. You know, there's so many ways to win, right? Like, there, there's, so, you know, look, there's people that have made the NBA that worked their face off but had a little less talent, and then there's you know, guys that just had so much goddamn talent that yeah, they worked, but like, there's just so many different ways to do it. The key is which bird knew themselves best. Got it? That's the bird. The bird that's like, fuck it, my wings are short, but I'll wake up earlier, you know? (laughs) That was good. (laughs) This is why D-Rock's around when this random shit comes up. My man, Desmond Wilson. There's a lot of growing undertones of gentrification within the city. Yeah. I'm just wondering what is your opinion on how to close the disparity gap and how to infuse more of these entrepreneurial initiatives in lower income That's a really good question. Desmond, I did something really smart three years ago. I promised myself that I wouldn't talk about shit that I don't understand. You know, as I started going to conferences and hearing people talk about social media, and I was like, they're wrong, they're wrong, and they're experts, and they're supposed to be experts. I don't know is the real answer to your question. I mean that. I have no goddamn idea because I don't understand city politics, tax, there's a lot of other things going on that don't allow me to answer your question as much as I'd like to. So the real answer, and boy this hurts me, is I don't know. That being said, I care about this issue, personally. That's why I went on The Breakfast Club. I care about this and I run content against minorities because I want to inspire them to understand it's not gonna be the town and the government that's gonna do it. Like, you, like the second you understand nobody's gonna do it for you and you go and do it and then you then, listen, here's what I promised about money. Let me make you one promise about money. Money never cares what the person looks like that's making them money. Do you understand? They don't care. They just want the money. And so, you know, I think the way we get female leadership, minority leadership, Latino leadership, all that, is just having more wins. It's the same answer I gave you about this town. How does this town win? Have a winner. How do you get more diversity? You have more people win, right? How do we get more diversity in the NBA? I don't know. Like, the white kid's gotta be good. <laughs> like, I don't know, like, like so, 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 the mark, the one thing, in, there's a lot of things in America, companies, politics, school organizations, a lot of them that will not allow the white kid to be an EMEA or the black kid to be a, the VC. But business is different. The internet did it for you, right? The internet did it for me, man. Everybody thought I was a loser. I got D's and F's. I was a loser, immigrant loser. But then the market allowed me to do me and now I'm a fucking hero, right? So. So, you know, we're all born with different natural talents and different things, but I think the answer is predicated on doing it, you know? And that's why I said, crap, I don't know how to fix the gentrification of all these towns, and there's a lot of that going on. It's happened in Brooklyn, you know, like my, you know? 
I'm like, I don't know that. That's a little bit in a different plane and I, I just don't know. But I know if I can get seven kids to build big businesses that if they are then examples for other kids that can look and be like, I look like that and I can do that, that's how you have to do it. And that's what I'm trying to do my little contribution to that community and those communities. And by the way, there's a lot of poor white and there's all sorts of stuff. To me, it's actually more of a financial and opportunity thing. You know, one of the big things, back to the Breakfast Club, this has been, you, you talk about your story, mine's less noble than yours. I talked about how eBay was an unbelievable opportunity for somebody with no money, right? Like go to the dollar store, go garage sailing, buy stuff, sell it on eBay. I've gotten thousands in the last two months of emails and DRock's shaking his head because he sees them. Just ungodly, and you can go to Twitter and search my name. Go search my name, Gary V, E-E, and eBay, because I want you to see, it's crazy. People literally tweeting things like, you know, I make $200 a week. This is not very, like, really needing money, and I made 400 bucks this weekend selling on eBay. Like, unbelievable stuff. So I think it's just, I'm a motivator, and I can, for some reason, get people to do stuff, and, like, people that are not hungry or not as hungry, like, all shapes and sizes go and do, and so, I don't know how to answer your question for this, but here's what I can tell you. If you build the best company, (laughs) this town, Silicon Valley, New York City, they'll take you. Gary, uh, Jim Cavell, president of Iron Truck Fitness. I've watched your fitness journey yes. over the last few years. I gotta, I gotta assume, but I would love to hear you elaborate on it, that 18 hours of hard work before are not as productive as 18 hours of hard work now because of your fitness journey. So I want you to explain that if it's true, and then maybe talk to the entrepreneurs in this room about how important it is to have a culture of health and wellness in their business. It's not true. <laughs> I, I, you were asking the question, I'm like, oh, this guy seems like such a good guy, this is gonna suck. You know, I, I, I will tell you that my energy level is exactly the same. But that's because I think I was just, I think I live, I, my big belief, and I should probably do this to be able to answer this once and for all, I think I have some weird chemical imbalance with adrenaline, right? Like I'm just, oh, like, it's just easy for me. I really genuinely don't feel it now. Let's keep going. That's right now. Do I think it's been smart that I've lost 40 pounds of fat and gained 15 pounds of muscle in the last 24 months? Yes, I think, I think the math of that is gonna work itself out, right? So I think you know, later down the line, I think it's going to be beneficial for me. The other thing, my friend, so look, you don't need me to anoint to this audience. If you are not common sense enough to understand physical health is a good idea, then you've already lost. Let's just start with that. Number two, the thing that I'm actually very passionate about in parallel and the space that I'm gonna be betting on very heavily financially and culturally is mental health. So I'm obsessed with meditation. I think meditation is going to be a huge play in the consumer behavior that we're gonna have a lot more conversations about the brain over the next 20 and 30 years and I'm excited to really work on being both physically and mentally the most healthy I can because I think they work more hand in hand than I think people realize. But you know, to finish off your question, of course I would recommend everybody to take care of themselves better. I'll give you one that is real. I like the feeling of grabbing my suitcase off the top of an airplane because I'm on them every day and like it feels lighter and my back doesn't hurt. I feel, it feels fun to pick up Xander and walk eight blocks in New York City with him here and his little face next to mine because I can actually hold him whereas before I could only go a block. So there's a lot of, I would tell you that one walk that I'm referencing where I 
carried him for 11 blocks and I got to kiss his face 40 times was worth every second that I put into health. Yes, my man. I grew up in New York, big Jets fan. I love you. If you own the Jets. When? When you own the Jets. How much do you pay Ryan Fitzpatrick? In this situation right now? But then put on the hat, you know, his agent. Yeah. How much do you ask for? It's an interesting question. So. Leo, you know, this is very nerdy. This is probably interesting for four of you. I'll try to go fast. So, if, you know, if you're as big of a Jets fan as I am, the Jets are in trouble because they don't have a lot of young talent, right? Like they've they've invested all on the defensive line. You know, they. I, I just saw Texas. I was getting on here that I think Mo Wilkerson just got a big contract, which Mo is literally probably my favorite Jet, and I'm against that signing because I don't think you pay that kind of money for defensive linemen in today's NFL. Uh, I would pay Fitz as the Jets owner for the next two years because they're enough, they, they'd have to, they, they have some chance of a miracle Super Bowl run if there's a lot of injuries with Brandon Marshall, with Revis, with Decker. They're top heavy with older guys. So here's what I would say to you. I would sign Fitz to a two year deal and pay him 12, 14, fine. His agent is asking for that range, fine. Or, and I'd have to really, there's a couple things I don't know about how healthy are my old guys, this and that. Like, there's probably a couple things I don't have its data point on. There's only one thing, there's only two moves for them. Either sign Fitz for two years and try to hope to hell there's enough injuries that lets you sneak in because the talent is tier two, not tier one, to win or blow the whole thing fucking up. You know, what I'd probably do and is trade Revis and Marsh. And the problem with the NFL is with a salary cap, you don't get anything for these guys. Like, what am I gonna get for Revis or Marshall or Decker? You're gonna get fourth, fifth, sixth round. It's crazy. Real talent, but the way the cap is, the money against the cap is too valuable. So they're in a rock and a hard place. Hey, Gary. Hey, man, how are you? I'm doing well. Good to see you again. Thank you, brother. Um, so, I want your take on something. I, I saw a video that uh, you did a couple weeks ago. It was kind of spontaneous. This lady stopped you. Uh, <laughs> get into an Uber, and, and I literally when I saw that video, I, I was I, I, I came out of a chair and it went like this. I thank you that you reminded me I can run the walls. Uh, I sincerely mean that. But the reason it stood out to me is uh, a, a quick background, and, and I, I kind of want an inflection point in your life. Yeah. Um, so I left the Marine Corps in 1998, went to architecture school, and suddenly everything had a dot com behind it. Yes. And made an airplane left turn. Yes. I didn't know anything about computers, I'd never owned one, but I knew that that was a revolutionary moment and I wanted to be a part of that. Same thing happened to me. Lot, Same right? thing happened to me. And so that comment that you made to that lady yeah. spoke to that moment. Real quick, just to get everybody aligned, somebody rolled up on me, we were leaving a conference, luckily having DRock around, we captured these moments. She came up to me, like I rolled down my window, she's like, can you just, in my selfie video with me, can you just say three words that would motivate me forever or something like that? And I said, you're gonna die. <laughs> I, I mean, I had, you know, again, similar to that bird thing I just said, like, I don't know where, like, that's what came out of me. <laughs> but it motivates me every day. I think it, you know, it's funny, I think I really hit that one for me, like, that's what motivates me, which is, that's true. And so, like, why wouldn't you live like, like you only have one life? So, go ahead. So when was that moment for you? 
Because for me, I know exactly when it was. And, and was, was there a moment where it was like a, a light bulb and, and... Where I was optimistic in the way you were? Because mine's the same. I was in dorm room my freshman year of college in 1994 and I saw the internet and I was like, oh my God, this, and I never owned a computer and I'd been on a computer 20 hours of my life because I was an F student and I didn't even know what the internet was. I said something like, is this the information superhighway? Like, I didn't know what was going on and I just knew right away that my life had changed at that moment. But I also think like there's a lot of different things. Guys, I have a book that I'm writing that I'll eventually put out called I Wish Everybody Was an Immigrant. And it's not too different than what I just told Dee over there in the corner, which is, you know, it's an advantage. I'm, I have an advantage that all my grandparents died in Russia except for one. Like, like everybody died in Russia at, do you know why everybody died in Russia at 50 and 55 and 60? Because nobody wanted to live. Do you know what communism is? I mean, you know, they didn't want to live. Like all my grandparents, both my grandfathers went to jail because they were Jewish. Because it was post-World War II Europe. Like, like, you know, like, and I don't mean jail like locked up for the night, I mean 10 years. You know, so like, I, uh, I, I feel like I came out the womb knowing like I was born in a shit place. I got lucky as hell to come to America. My mom is the greatest person on earth and she parented me. Like my dad taught me not to be full of shit and that saved me. And I mean, I think that moment's been in my heart from the get to be honest with you. I think we got time for one more. How about that lady all the way at the end? Let's go with her. That's what, you, yep, you. I like how you turned around. Who? <laughs> Me? Okay, well now you're probably gonna laugh at this question might be somewhat superficial. What's your name? Terry. 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 Uh, number 651, Wine on a Plane, was my favorite my TV library episode. What did you think? <laughs> That's awesome, thank you. My favorite episode of Wine Library TV. <sighs> God, so this is a good opportunity to reminisce about something that's so near dear my heart. I, I don't think about Wine Library TV that often these days, so I thank you, Terry. It's, a, it's funny how like, not as serious as everything else, but you just brought me a lot of happiness. I love the episode when I did it outside in the snow because that was a fun episode to get a little nerdy for you, Scoble, and the others. That was my first episode to make the front page of dig.com, and if you guys remember, that was such a big deal for the internet. If you get on dig, that was like, that got me a lot. I love the episode I had with Jim Cramer from Mad Money because everybody was calling me the Jim Cramer of wine. I thought that was a funny meme. Uh, AJ's first episode, when he turned 21, that's something, you know, the fact that me and my brother in 40 years can sit down and with all our grandkids put on a screen or wherever we're living in those days and show them an episode of AJ turning 21, super cool. The episodes with my dad, you know, were super fun to me. You know, just like, again, similar stuff. When he's gone, I can go have that content. Um, I, you know what, my favorite episode was the, the episode where I ate all those different foods. That was the first episode to go really viral. I ate like dirt and like cereal and cherries. That episode caught the attention of Conan O'Brien's producers and then I did Conan and you, you have to remember this, Scoble, right? This was 2007. That's right, socks, dirt. I, Conan O'Brien's producers emailed me and said, we'd like you to do the Conan O'Brien show. Now this is 2007. Most people don't even know what YouTube is yet, right? I, I looked very careful at the email address because I thought it was my friends playing a joke on me. <laughs> I emailed them back, I like held my breath, it was real. This is how tight-knit the entire internet community was in 2007. I announced that I'm gonna be on Conan 
The whole internet had my back. You know, Gruber from Daring Fireball, Boing Boing, Dig, Reddit, like everybody. All of the few people that were on Twitter at that point. Every, like I felt, I'll, you know what? I don't know if I've ever felt more professional pressure than being in the green room, looking at Twitter, and this is again 2007, early, and just seeing basically the entire Web 2.0, and remember, I, I referenced it earlier tonight, I was a newcomer to it. I was like this kind of different thing, and they all rallied behind me. Like they, I, Justine, uh, and Zay Frank, and these early video bloggers, they all were like, you did it for us. Like, t- like you're gonna be on, a video blogger on the Conan show. And I was sitting there, I was like, I have to, and I'd never been on TV. So like, here I am, like, never been on TV, and I'm going on this big stage, and what I found out later is that Conan doesn't, I didn't know this, Conan, I didn't know there was anybody who did it different, Conan doesn't rehearse. When I went on to do the Today Show and Dr. Oz and Ellen DeGeneres and all that, they rehearsed. Conan's improv. So, luckily I ended up being improv, but I didn't know that about myself. Literally, I'm just like sitting there in the, behind this curtain, just like this, and they're like, you're about to go out in three, two, and I'm saying, Shit, I have to deliver big for the whole Web 2.0 video blogging community, not just for me. I get pushed out. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It crushed. I got Conan to eat dirt. He's unbelievable. I probably got paid the best compliment I'll ever get paid, which was it ends, the crowd goes crazy. Conan turns to me. I didn't realize how notoriously tough Conan was on his guests. These are things I learned later in life. He looks at me and goes, that was phenomenal. He goes, so where do you perform? And I go, what? He goes, where do you do your, your act? And I was like, oh, I'm not a comedian. I'm a wine guy. He goes, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and, so, and so I would say the cereal, I think it was like 148, maybe the cereal, the dirt, the cigar, because that became the blueprint for the Today Show, Ellen DeGeneres, Conan, which no question gave me even more street cred in the web community, which led to a very big change in my life. Was that an amazing 90 minutes? Yeah. Thank you, Birmingham. Thank you so much. I love you guys. Thank you. Thank you. See you in the lobby.